I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 2. Let me just mention a few things. One is, we have some visitors today, some new faces. Let me explain to you what we do in the morning. We have a high view of the word here, uh, as many other churches do. We try to incorporate our high view of the word into everything we do. So the songs that we pick are not randomly chosen. The songs that we sing generally have something to do with the theme of the sermon so that we have some flow in our service. And, and the songs we sing, we, we, we try to choose songs that are easy for the congregation to sing, but have some meaning as well. So we sing our belief, we sing our doctrine, we, we sing glory to God, and we try to keep the focus on Christ throughout the entire service. So we worship God in the way we sing, in the way we praise. Uh, we worship God in the reading of scripture, in our prayers prior to the beginning of the service. Uh, we also worship God in our giving. Um, these are all forms of worship. Then we worship God in the, the basics of the faith, as we just did with the catechism. And finally, at the end of the service, we worship God in the hearing, preaching and hearing of the word. We practice a type of preaching called exposition. It's not the only type of preaching. It's not the only type of good preaching. But what we do here is we, instead of coming up with a, a group of ideas, we go through passages in the context they were written. We try to explain why a certain passage is related to the chapters around it and the books around it and, and what it should have meaning to us. So all of this is a form of worship and we get the opportunity to do this once a week as a body uh, we think the assembly is an important part of our walk of faith as believers come together and put their focus on christ and serve him and serve each other at the same time so if you have any questions come and talk to me afterwards i'll be happy to discuss more details with you the other thing i want to tell you is that something is coming something's coming now this is a special sermon that we're going to have on February the 16th. I think it's important. It's something that's been on my heart for a long time that I'd like to share with you as we continue along this road and uh, traveling as a family, as the body of Christ. There's a red flag up there. Notice the red flags here. This is just incredible, isn't it? They all mean something. I don't want you to try and figure out what they mean. What I want you to do is be thinking about this. And, and I'm going to ask those of you that are here, those of you that run into people that go to church through the town, that we all come together on February the 16th so that we can hear this. I believe it's an integral part of our vision forward as a church. So you'll hear more about it next week. And then when we come together on the 16th, I'll be able to share with you. You can be reading ahead, if you would like, in Philippians chapter 2. The text will be taken from that chapter. So I want to talk to you this morning about the Christmas story. And I know we're a little bit out of sync in this, that I, Christmas was a couple weeks ago, I, at least on my calendar, right? <laughs> but I, I wanted to hold off on this until we got beyond the, uh, the typical time where we turn our attention to Luke chapter 2, because I think there's a lot more here than what we give it credit for. We're, we're probably going to knock down a couple of sacred cows this morning over things that we think about Christmas, things that we, we believe that we've been taught. Uh, but what I want you to pay attention to as we get into this text is what the scripture says as opposed to what we think it says. Because frequently we'll be going through the Bible and we've been taught this by you know our, our favorite pastor when we were young or the Sunday school teacher or 
or you know, people that are close to us, we've been taught certain things that, that may or may not be there. Not necessarily harmful, uh, but I think when we begin to look at Scripture the way it's written and try to make some determination what the original author was trying to say, how the original people would have heard it, and what we can do about it, applying these truths to our lives, I think we find out that things get a little richer, things get a little bit more profound, that there's a much deeper meaning than sometimes what tradition will tell us. So that's my, my prayer for us today, is that we see this, as we look at Luke chapter 2 objectively, and and get a truth that we can take home. The one truth that I'd like you to take home today is if you came in here this morning and you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, uh, if you have confessed your sins and repented and you now have eternal life, that's what the scripture tells us. But the other thing is you're glory bound. You're glory bound. We're, if those who believe in Jesus Christ are headed for glory and that's what the passage is going to show us today. So let's get into it. Uh, our sermon is the glory of God. This is part five uh, on our series in Luke, God's love for everyone. And our passage is divided up into three responses. These are three responses to the birth of Jesus Christ, uh, born in Bethlehem, okay? So here are the three responses. We see the parents' responses, uh, Joseph and Mary in verses one through seven. In verses 8 through 14, we see heaven's response. And in verse 15 through 21, we see the response of the shepherds. And that, that one is particularly profound. So let, let's just kind of dissect this and take a look at it. Let's look at the parents' response, starting in verse 1. In those days, now, now what's happened so far is we've gone through Luke chapter 1. And so this is the follow-up to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, there, Elizabeth and Zechariah are visited by an angel. Elizabeth is barren. The angel says, you're going to have a baby. Uh, Zechariah struggles a little bit with that, but eventually they all get on board, and uh, the baby is born. That baby turns out to be John the Baptist, uh, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's the one that will go before the Messiah and proclaim his presence. Now, there's a second visitation in Luke chapter 1 on Mary, a young girl, probably 14 years old or so, uh, living in, in Israel. And the baby, and the angel says to Mary, well, you're going to have a baby, although you are a virgin, uh, that you will, you will have a baby by the miracle of the, the Holy Spirit, and he is going to be the Messiah. So we have the announcement of the, the forerunner to the Messiah in chapter 1, the birth of the forerunner, and now we're waiting for the birth of, of Mary's baby. Now, Joseph struggled a little bit with that. Uh, he wasn't quite sure what to make of it. He's a regular guy, just like the rest of us. And, you know, his, his, his fiance shows up and says, I had a visit by an angel, and I'm going to have a baby. And Joseph doesn't know what to do with this. So he struggles for a while, and then he considers uh, divorce, and, and divorce was pertinent to this. I'll explain why in just a little bit. Um, but he, he hasn't decided exactly what he's going to do as of the beginning of this, but we're going to find out that he did decide and it was a good decision. So in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, and I, I, think, I, I don't think this is by chance. For one thing, it places this passage in history during a particular time, a uh, particular reign of a particular emperor, but Luke has an ulterior motive as well, and we'll see that as we get near the end of the passage. 
It says, that in verse 2, it says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, they took census for particular reasons in the Roman Empire. Mostly, it had to do with paying taxes. And generally, what it would require is for you to go to your hometown where either you had some property or your family had some property, and you would fill out these papers and say, yes, I came from this hometown. Yes, my family owns this property. Maybe I own the property. And then they would go, okay, here's how much tax you owe. So this is why Caesar Augustus is doing this. He wants to get everybody registered, all their paperwork in line, and collect their taxes. So that's why they go each to his own town. And Joseph, now Joseph is the Joseph of Joseph and Mary, also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, this is kind of significant. Joseph lives in Galilee. The southern part of Israel is Judea. The central part of Israel during this first century AD is a nation called Samaria. Uh, Samaria is not well regarded by Judea or Galilee. The northern portion of Israel is Galilee. And uh, the southern portion of Israel has a closer relationship with Galilee than they do Samaria. Uh, so, and what had happened was uh, back when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom away, they settled it with, with immigrants, and, the, and the, the people in Israel just didn't abide by this. There was something wrong with Samaritans, and you know whether it was right or wrong, it's what the situation was. So Joseph lives up in Galilee. He's a Jew, but he lives in Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a uh, it was a town that was on the border between Galilee and Samaria. And part of it was in Samaria, part of it was in Galilee, and nobody liked them. <laughs> so, the, you know, the people in Galilee were suspicious because they had alignment with Samaria. The Samaritans were suspicious because they had alignment with Galilee. So Joseph comes from this town that has no respect, that has no regard, and he's got to to respond to the census, and he goes down to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, there's two things we need to see here. Number one, Bethlehem. What is Bethlehem? Well, if we translate the word Bethlehem, it means house of bread, house of bread. And the image that a Jew would have heard when he heard house of bread would be that of an oven. So you have an oven where bread is made. Now, that, that's significant because God is doing something here. We've seen the visitation of these angels. We've seen the supernatural conception of two babies, one of which is going to be the Messiah. The other one is going to be the one who proclaims the Messiah. And now we have this town uh, where Joseph is called to, and it, it's called the oven. And, and we find out that jo Joseph is of the lineage of David. Now, this is another important point, other than the oven thing. Joseph is a descendant of David. God has promised the people of Israel that somebody in the lineage of David would always be on the throne of Israel. So what this means, and the way a Jew would read this very first couple sentences would be, oh, Joseph, regardless of where he grew up, regardless of where he's living, is eligible to sit 
on the throne. It doesn't mean automatically that Joseph will be on the throne, but Joseph is eligible. He satisfies the requirements to be a king of Israel. That means that any of his descendants would be able to sit on the throne as well. So he's a legitimate heir to the throne of Israel. And so Joseph goes down to Bethlehem. He's part of the lineage of David. And verse 5 said, to be registered with Mary, who his betrothed, who was with child. Now, let me tell you what's happening here. When a young Jewish man wanted to get married, he would go to his father and say, I like that girl over there. His father would go across town and visit the father of that woman and say, my son wants to be married to your daughter. There an agreement would be made, papers would be drawn up. This is, you know, we think of fiancés and engagements as this kind of trial period before you get married. Uh, that wasn't how it worked in the Jewish culture. When you made a contract to get married, it was a legally binding vow. And then at that point, the young man had a year to go back to his father's house and prepare a place for him and his bride to live. After that year, and when that room was finished, they would then march across town, and they would have a wedding ceremony, and the relationship would be consummated. But the, the betrothal was binding. And so what's important about this is Joseph has worked through his difficulty with Mary. He is now with her. She is his betrothed. But the complication is that she's with child. And this has ramifications throughout the entire story because Joseph has not had relations with Mary and he had the legal right to put her aside and he's decided Joseph gets a visitation by an angel as well to say it's okay stick with her she's a good girl and so he decides to do that but now his fiance is pregnant and people around her will begin to notice right away that something is off. And in that culture, this brought shame upon the family. It would not only bring shame upon the family, it would bring shame upon the village that they lived in. And the, the ultimate penalty for this, if, if the elders of the town decided to do this, would be to stone these people. Because the assumption would be that they had had relations before they got married. So Joseph is sticking by Mary. She's in a tough situation. And, and you, you, I mean, you, you put this in our context, and, you know, somebody shows up on the steps of your house, and maybe it's your niece, and she says, I'm pregnant. Oh, boy, and what happened? Oh, an angel visited me. And we're all going, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, the culture was the same back then. It's a hard thing for people to understand. It's a hard thing for them to accept. Joseph believes the Lord is moving in his life. The Lord is moving in Mary's life. But they're dealing with this overall situation that can, be, can bring dishonor down on everybody. So Mary's with child. Uh, they're in this legally binding relationship. And now they've got to take a trip. Uh, so here's where the traditional story about Christmas begins to break down. Because... We all, I mean, you've seen the cartoons, you've seen the silhouettes and that sort of thing. 
Joseph and Mary leave Nazareth on a donkey. Mary's due at any minute. They get into Bethlehem. They run into the city. They got to find a place for her to do delivery and so on and so forth. And that's not what the scripture says. So Nazareth and Bethlehem are about 90 miles apart. Here's a picture of the route they would follow. Uh, Nazareth is at the northern end of the Valley of Jezreel, which a lot of us would know as the Valley of Armageddon. Uh, There's no direct route down to Jerusalem and Bethlehem, so they've got to go around mountains and rivers and that sort of thing. It's a 90-mile trip, and it would take four to five days. And here's the problem we have when we start start assigning things to this story that aren't there. There's no mention of a donkey. As a matter of fact, they probably didn't own one. They were a young couple just getting started out. He's living with his dad. She's living with her family. They've got to go to Bethlehem. They're betrothed. They're dealing with this situation where she's pregnant. And and maybe there was a donkey. Okay? But the scripture doesn't tell us that. So they they have to take this four or five day uh, trip, probably on foot. And we, we have this vision that she's due at any minute. It doesn't really work real well. <laughs> uh, I mean, what type of betrothal is this where the husband says, I know you're about to deliver. We need to walk 90 miles. Do you mind if we walk down to Richmond? What happens on the way? I mean, so th- th- we assign things to this story that just aren't there because, because the story is a bit more romantic with the things that we assign to it. So, as far as we know, there's no donkey. Uh, And in verse 6, it says, when they get there, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It doesn't say how long they were there, but again, when the Jew would hear, and while they were there, the Jew would be thinking, some time has passed. They've been in Bethlehem for a while. There wasn't this urgent landing in the middle of the night where they've got to find room and they've got to do something Mary's going to have a baby they got to Bethlehem and they've been there for a while and now it's time for the baby to come and in verse 7 and she gave birth to her firstborn son now some people will look at that and go oh the first of some brothers and sisters but that's not what Luke's trying to tell us He's making a reference to the firstborn of Mary and Joseph. And if you take a look back in Exodus chapter 13 and Deuteronomy chapter 21, you find out that the God has imposed upon the Jews the dedication, the consecration of their firstborn. And so the firstborn significance to a Jew in the first century is this one is dedicated to the Lord. Whether it's an animal, whether it's a, a son or a daughter or a land or whatever, and what they would do is they would then take that animal or that 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 child or that land and give them to the priest and say, "Here, this is for the benefit of the temple. This is for the service unto the Lord, service unto the entire nation." So this is not the first of many born. This is the one that is consecrated. This one that is anointed to serve the Lord, blessed in such a way that the Lord would make that happen. And they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And again, the tradition is, well, they couldn't afford a nice blanket. <laughs> okay? But the fact of the matter is that when a baby was born in, in Israel, 
if the parents were going to take care of them, they would cut claws into these long strips and wrap the baby in the strips so that as the, the limbs formed and began to, to loosen up some, that they wouldn't be deformed. This was an act of love. It was an act of care. It was an act of two responsible parents who really don't have a whole lot to do, taking their last claws maybe and taking care of this baby. And that's significant for us to know because for, by our present day standards, this was an unplanned pregnancy. They weren't planning on having a child. When the child comes, they're doing what parents do. They're sacrificing to take care of the baby. They're making sure the baby's welfare is well tended to. And that's the way the people around him would have seen it. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, you know this scenario. They knock on the door of the hotel and the mean guy comes to the door and says, why are you bothering me so late at night? Oh, we need a room. My wife's going to have a baby. No, go away. You know, we've all seen that in the pageants. Except the, the word that Luke uses here is the word catalume. It, it can mean in, it probably means guest room. It's a general term that can be a place to stay. There was no room for them in the guest room, no room in them, no, no place for them to stay. And, and the idea of an inn, of a hotel, when we start thinking about what a hotel is, just doesn't work in Bethlehem in the first century. The village has got about 200 people in it. There's no highway, no major highway that goes through it or even to it. And Jerusalem is three or four miles away. And they've got all the hotels and inns in the world in Jerusalem. Why would anybody come to Bethlehem and stay? It's too small a village. And archaeological evidence shows us that there's, there's no inn in Bethlehem. So they probably stayed with family or friends, most likely family. And if you stop to think about it, it almost had to be family because they had been there for a while. I mean, you know, if, if Kelly and I were going to have a baby next week, <laughs> maybe that's a surprise on February 16th. <laughs> I would not say, look, you're due in a couple weeks, let's go to Fairfax and get a room. <laughs> you know, I, I, Joseph and Mary are in the same situation. So they've been there for a while, they're staying in the guest room, and they're staying somewhere where somebody's put it up, and, you know, I mean, if we wanted to use the word N, uh, there's a word called, Greek word called pandokion uh, that they use in the, the tale of the Good Samaritan. That means hotel. Uh, Luke doesn't do that here. Bethlehem's just too small for this. So maybe Bethlehem was crowded, and maybe, maybe not for a long time. Why would it be crowded for a long time? There's nothing going on there. So, but may, some people, well, maybe it was crowded, maybe, but maybe, maybe it was this. Maybe the young girl is pregnant. She is an unwed mother. Joseph might be suspecting this. Uh, 
I mean, we find out later on that everybody knows what's going on. Maybe they arrive in Bethlehem and they do have family there. And they show up and the family goes, well, wait a minute. Is she with child? Yes. Now, this is where the whole thing about honor and shame come into play. Because this is not just Mary's embarrassment. This is a dishonor to the family. And anything that is a dishonor to the family is a dishonor to the village. So they would take this very personally. Yet there would be a tension because they're obligated to extend hospitality to a visitor and particularly to a member of the family. So what does a family do? Well, they say, well, here's the only room that we have. Why were they put in this one room that they have? Let me explain how the, the houses were set up then. Okay, this is a picture of a house in Berea. That, um, it's up in northern Greece, but that would be typical of the way the houses were built back then. The lower floor of the house uh, wasn't where the living quarters were. People lived up on the second floor and up on the third floor. The lower floor of the house was kind of a gathering area, and uh, it would have a big door just like that one has right there so they could let the animals in at night. So, and they would bring their animals in at night because that would be the protection they would have against predators or against somebody trying to steal their animals. So there would be a big room there. There would be an elevated area where the animals would be, and there would be a ditch around all the ends to catch any debris that the animals generated. And so, now we don't know this, but here's what I think happened. I think Mary and Joseph show up, and the family says, put them with the animals. With the animals. Now we know, we know that they're with the animals because they put the baby in a manger. And see, uh, and again, our, our idea of a manger is that, you know, there's this wooden little trough type thing and it's got hay on it and it's clean and the baby's sitting there and it's got a beautiful blanket and mom and dad got these beautiful clothes and everything and people are gathered around and everything. This is a feeding trough. It's filthy. It's what the animals eat out of. It's what the animals ate out of that day. So we know that Mary and Joseph, wherever they are, whether or not this is a cave or some kind of public shelter or whether or not it's family house, are in there with the animals. This is where, this is where we've got to think realistically about what's going on because this baby is going to grow up with a stigma about it. You know, in John chapter 18, Jesus is having another one of those encounters with the Pharisees. And they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Now, they're not, they're not saying, hey, can you bring your dad here? They're making a statement. They're saying, we know who your father is, and your father is illegitimate. They're calling Jesus an illegitimate child. So this is Jesus as an adult. See, and when we think about things like a prophet's not honored in his own town, we think that Jesus is going to be rejected in his own town. We don't assign those things to the baby. Because everybody loves a baby, right? Right? Here's what Isaiah has to say. Now, think about the baby when you hear this passage in Isaiah. 
Isaiah 53, 2. This is a suffering servant passage. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is a shriveled root that looks like it has no value. And he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So we want the baby to be loved. And we think that somewhere along the way, this transformation in the baby occurs that where people begin rejecting him. And anybody who's raised teenagers would think that that would be somewhere around 14 or 15 years old. <laughs> but there's no transition. The baby's born in what the culture considers shame. Not pleasant to look at. So this baby is born in less than ideal circumstances. There's no clean clothes. No little lammies hanging around looking at Jesus adoringly. No little guy playing the drums in the background. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, we, 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 we put all these things in there. Uh, the wise men are there. They don't even show up for two years. And everybody's looking adoringly. And these women, these people, Joseph and Mary, are put down with the animals. And the baby's in this this slop bucket. But I want you to see the overall narrative because God is moving in the way that God always moves, in a way that we least suspect it. God is saying, open your eyes, there's something important going on here. Something more important than your, your preconceptions about the culture, your preconceptions about what this story should be about because I've already sent angels to both sets of parents to tell them the one is going to proclaim, the other is going to be the Messiah. And now I send them to Bethlehem. I send them to the house of bread. I send them to the oven. And I put the baby in a feeding trough, in, in a serving tray. And the baby will call himself in John chapter 6, the bread of life born in the oven and served up in a feeding trough. And God sets the stage for the humility that this baby will serve under, but at the same time establishes the glory that will come. So how did the parents respond? Well, they, they were loving and they were caring. They, they accepted the baby. They embraced the baby, struggling to do the best they can. Meager means, but they're working through it. But it would be easy to understand that maybe they were a little bit concerned. Maybe there's a little bit of despair going on. I mean, now they're facing the reality of the baby born, and they're going to have to raise it, and they understand the situation completely. And so God doesn't leave them there. He doesn't say, oh, you're going to have to fend for yourself until the baby's old enough for me to use. He sends encouragement right away. And this comes in, in, the, in the way of heaven's response to the birth of the baby. And that starts in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherds are humble. They're not well respected in the culture. 
but they're highly regarded in Scripture. Again, it's God just doing things differently than we expect him to do. Okay, and so they're out in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Jerusalem's about three miles away. Uh, they're tending their flocks. Um, these were probably uh, the sheep that were used in the temple sacrifice. And, and the shepherds are probably living outside with the sheep with some sort of meager shelter as well. And so they're just going about their business. And in verse 9, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, notice there's one angel. And, and so we've got all this activity. These angels are showing up here. They're showing up there. They're talking to people. Now the angel comes to these shepherds in this no-account town out in the middle of nowhere. And they uh, appears to these shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. Now, notice, the glory of the Lord doesn't shine around the angel. It's around the shepherds. And so, these are just normal guys out in the field. And all of a sudden, this heavenly being shows up, and everybody's got some kind of weird glow to them. And they react the way people react when they encounter an angelic being in the scriptures. They're afraid. What is going on? Do you see that? There, there's something happening here. And they're, they're, they're concerned about what this angel may do. Because angels either brought blessing or judgment. And they don't know what the angel's doing there. Well, they don't have to wait too long. The angel said to them, verse 10, fear not. I mean, the angel always does that, don't they? When, when they're bringing blessing, they say fear not. And, and it, it, it's like that's just going to allay everybody's concerns. I, I don't think it did. <laughs> I think their knees are knocking and their elbows are shaking. But the angel wants to let them know that he's got some good news. And then he gives them news that is absolutely incredible. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that there will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So he says, the Redeemer, the Chosen One, the one that... The Jews have been waiting for 2,000 years is being born in that village about 150 feet away. And we see the first proclamation of the gospel to somebody outside of these two families that are being blessed with these babies. And Luke is very, very purposeful in his choosing of words here uh, because it's the first time that we see the name Christ the office Christ in Luke's writings. And you remember, he talked about Caesar Augustus earlier. Caesar Augustus insisted that he be called the savior of the world. He was the emperor of the whole known world and he insisted that he be called by that title, the savior of the world. And these angels say to these shepherds, the real Christ, the real savior of the world is here. Now, Christ is the Greek interpretation of the Jewish word Messiah. It's where we get Messiah from. So they tell the shepherds, Caesar Augustus isn't the savior of the world. The savior of the world is lying there in a feeding trough in that village, in the flesh. And in verse 12, they say, and this will be a sign for you. They need a sign. Find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Not, not so unusual. I, I mean, if they walk into Bethlehem and there's two babies, it's very likely that both of them are going to be in swaddling cloths, but only one of them is going to be lying in a manger. Only one of them will be lying in a feeding trough. 
And so up until this point, there's been one angel in front of these guys. And in verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Now we got a multitude of the heavenly hosts. And the, the, again, the word here means a vast army. And the indication is that the entire population of heaven shows up. There's one angel in front of these gardens, these, these shepherds, and all of a sudden, everybody in heaven is there. And it, it's got to be one of the most incredible things that anybody's ever seen. The entire heavenly host is standing in front of these angels and saying, glory to God in the highest on earth, peace among the, those with whom he is pleased. They're singing the glory of God. And the, and the shepherds are the only ones hearing this. But it is, it's heaven's response to the birth of Christ. The parents are giving loving care. They're in a situation that's difficult at its very best. Meanwhile, heaven is celebrating. Heaven is having a party. And let me tell you why they all show up. Yeah, they want to give glory to God. But the angels have never seen redemption. They've never seen salvation. There's no plan of redemption for the angels that have fallen. And God has a plan of redemption for his people here on earth. And he's just initiated it. He's just put it into action. And the heavenly host stands up and goes, glory to God. Who would have thought this would happen? Well, the shepherds, they've got to respond to this somehow. We have this incredible moment in verse 15. When the angels went away from them in the heaven... The heavenly host is before these guys. And I don't know what it looked like. I'm thinking the sky was filled with millions of angels. <laughs> and they're singing glory to God. And there's this celebration. All of a sudden they turn around and they leave. And the shepherds are like, oh, what just happened? What do we do now? But something's happened to the shepherds. They've gone through some kind of change. They were filled with fear. And now... The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They believe it. They embrace it for all that it's worth. There's no hesitation. There is no doubt. And you see, the transformation comes from the fear that these guys have when the angel arrives to this zeal and this excitement uh, with the news that they've been given. Because in verse 16 it says, and they went with haste. We looked at this two weeks ago. They went with zeal. They went with passion. They went with a high degree of emotion and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They made it known. They started talking to people. Now listen carefully. Because again, the traditional story tells us that shepherds went into the village and found them sitting over here in this little... That's not what the scripture says. It says that they made known what was told them. First, it seems as though they, they made known to Joseph and Mary. Okay? But here's the way I see this playing out. 
the, the heavenly host shows up, says, this is what's going on. The shepherds go running into Bethlehem, knocking on doors and saying, wait a minute, there's a baby somewhere here. There's a baby, a swaddling cloth, swaddling, oh, there's one over there. No, no this one's in a feeding trough. <laughs> and you can see the town going, well, why wouldn't anybody put a baby in a feeding trough? But maybe David's family goes, oh, not David's family, Joseph's family goes, oh, that must be Mary. She's down with the animals. And the shepherds are filled with energy and excitement. And they make it known. And listen, and, and we know that it's not just Joseph and Mary, because in verse 18 it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. People are just awestruck. What kind of story is this? What do you mean? Manger, angels, millions of angels showing up. So it has an impact on the shepherds. The impact it has on the shepherds causes them to start making these proclamations. And in verse 19, I mean in verse 18, the village here is in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. You see, when the shepherds walk into Mary and Joseph and the baby and say, the heavenly host has shown up and here's what we were told. All of their fears, all of their doubts, every concern that Mary and Joseph might have had is just washed away in the certainty of what God is doing. So the shepherds deliver their news and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Shepherds related what they had heard. And when they related what they heard, you see, it stirred the hearts of the townspeople. We don't know ultimately how they responded, but they certainly were struck with awe. It touched the heart of Mary. And the shepherds' obedience and zeal does two things. Number one, it calls people to the truth. Here's the truth of what's happening. That baby's not somebody to be ashamed of. That baby's not somebody to ignore. That baby's the Savior, sent here by God. You don't have to rely on Caesar Augustus because your salvation's sitting right here in this village. So the first thing that happens is it calls people to the truth. And the second thing is it it ministers. Their excitement, their proclamation ministers. Ministers certainly to Mary, certainly to Joseph, probably to the entire village. In verse 21, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, a name given by the angel, watch this, before he was conceived in the womb. Nothing's wrong. This was the plan. This was the way it was supposed to roll out. He was given the name before he was conceived. There's not plan B. There's not, God's not scrambling in heaven to keep up with everything that's going on. He had a plan, and it's been in place later on, we find out, from before the foundation of the earth. So we have these, we have these three responses to the birth of the baby. We have the parents. They're loving. They're caring. But they're concerned. They've got many monumental struggles against them in the future. 
We see heaven's response, the celebration and the declaration of the glory of God. And then we see the shepherd's response, and and their transformation causes them to speak truth to people and become ministers of hope. See, all this detail is important to us. It's important to us to understand what's going on here. So, I mean, we could look at the big picture and go, okay, so we're called to proclaim the truth. We're called to be ministers of hope. Yes, amen, we are. So, in that regard, we're no different than the shepherds. But we lose all that if we begin singing Silent Night to ourselves. We lose all that if we have this scenario that's clean and sanitized. And it's a story about Mary and Joseph and the baby. It's not a story about us. But when we get down in the nitty-gritty, we find out it is about us. And if we continue on in the book of Luke, we find out that the baby was sent to go to the cross to sacrifice himself in our place so that we could become one with him. Now, I told you at the beginning of this that we're bound for glory if we believe in Jesus Christ. If we've confessed our sin, if we've repented, if we've acknowledged that he's the only son of God, we're bound for glory. Let me show you how this works. If you turn to John 17, Jesus is praying this incredible priestly prayer. And he lays out some truths for you and I that are directly related to what's happening in Bethlehem in year one. He says this, 17.6, John 17.6. I have, now this is complicated, but I I just want you to follow me and we'll, we'll point out the primary points. I have manifested your name, he's talking to his Father in heaven, to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now, it's talking about the people of God, the people who believe in Jesus Christ, okay? Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me. He taught us. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They believe. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Jesus says, they're going to be here once I return to you. But they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. We have unity in the the church, unity in the body of Christ. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. He's talking about Judas, who was lost from the beginning. That the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, again he says, and the word has... The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Now, those are all our marching orders. We're one with each other. 
uh, Christ is saying that he's praying for us to be one with each other just as he's one with the Father, saying don't take them out of the world, leave them there so that they can speak your truth to the people around them. And then he says in verse 22, the glory you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus has the glory of the Father. If we're becoming one with Jesus Christ, we have that same glory. And you know what? This might be hard for us to accept all the time. Just like the truth of what was happening to Joseph and Mary might have been hard for them to accept once the reality of it rose up in their lives. But praise God. Our situation is not determined by how we feel about our circumstances. Our situation is determined by what God says about them. And God says that if you and I believe in Jesus Christ, we have his glory. Now, that might not fully manifest itself in our lives yet, but there will come a day, brothers and sisters, when we stand before the Lord and they ask us, did you receive my son as your savior? And we say yes, and the answer will be enter into my glory. We're bound for glory. We have an eternity of glory waiting for us. If you came here today and you believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, you're bound for the same glory I am. If you came in here and you don't believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can have that glory. Just a matter of recognizing your sin and confessing it. Asking God for forgiveness. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the promise of glory. Well, not, that, not that we hunger for fame and riches, Father, but we hunger for the peace. Lord, for the, the love that you offer us. So I pray that you move among us today, Father. Draw us unto you. Change us by the hearing of the word. Change us by the, the telling of the true story of Christmas. It's nitty and gritty and difficult, Father, but the story that has redemption and glory at the end, Father. Help us to embrace that, Father. Help us to walk in that. Help us to become vessels of your grace and mercy, proclaimers of your gospel, that we might minister hope, Father, and that we might minister truth to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray.